What I'm going to be talking about today is about some ESRC-funded research that I'm doing at Bristol University. And it considers the questions about well-being um, in terms of the lives of mixed citizenship families in the UK. So this is couples or families where one part isn't subject to immigration control, they're usually a citizen, and then one part has no stable or legal immigration status. And I'm particularly looking at situations where these mixed citizenship couples, um, where the precarious migrant is a man. And so these are sort of heterosexual couples where one person, the man, is at some, somehow deportable, is at risk of being removed from the UK, but he's got a British or European partner or children, so part of the family can't be removed. And I'm looking at how family life is performed under this threat of removal and how it affects the whole family, not just the precarious migrant, but also British citizens. And so this way, I think the talk really complements Helena Ray's talk, which was uh, conducted a couple of weeks ago. She's looking at quite similar couples where there's this question of citizenship, but she's looking at um, situations where the entry of the non-citizen is being prevented, whereas I'm looking at it from the other way around, so where one party is being um, at risk of or is being removed from the country. And so these are couples that have um, historically been sort of a site of contestation where the boundaries and national belonging are really contested. And again, as Helena has written, um, she's looked a lot at how these mixed, um, mixed citizenship, often mixed racial families, have been seen as somehow problematic. And she's written about how these are very gendered and racialised. And certainly I would argue that men's emotional lives um, tend to be overlooked in the literature. So there's... Uh, particularly when the men in question are ethnic minorities. And, I'm, and I would argue that these families, where there's a non-citizen within the family, continue to be considered intrinsically problematic. And as you probably are aware, there's been an awful lot of debate around this um, recently. And a very pervasive belief that you see in the tabloids, but also um, in political discourse, that unwelcome foreigners, and assume male in most cases, start relationships, get married, or have children in order to circumvent migration controls. So there's quite a pervasive suspicion over some of these relationships. And we've seen a lot of tabloids, um, sort of attacks of human rights, in particular Article 8, the, Article 8 of the European Convention on Human Rights, this Article um, 8 refers to the right to respect for family and, family and private life. So there's kind of suspicion that this human right in particular is used by undesirable non-citizens to undermine the state's control to control its borders and to deport those it wants to exclude. And if, you might see from the picture, Theresa May famously said that a man managed to stop his deportation on the basis of his relationship to his pet cat, which wasn't true, but still the image really stuck. <coughs> and the result has been that um, quite a lot of relationships are disputed as either being sham or somehow opportunistic, and other relationships... Um, seen as somehow sacrificial or not particularly, or the, uh, the or part of the family not particularly important, I guess, to the to this family itself. And so this kind of concern around Article 8 and around the, um, the right of particular family members to belong to the country has been, had a huge impact on the legislation in this area. And there's been all sorts of recent changes, including things um, to appeal rights, to legal aid, to uh, to legal aid, which makes it very hard for people to articulate the, their right to stay in the country. But in particular, there's been a lot of emphasis on increasing deportations and a drastic raising of the Article 8 threshold before people can challenge their deportation. And in particular, the Immigration Act that came out last year um, made a lot of changes to the deportation process and restrictions to the extent to which one's family life can interfere with the state's rights to um, deport somebody it doesn't want in the country. And this particularly affects people with uh, prison sentences. So people who have got prison sentences of four months, uh, sorry, four years or more, have to now meet this kind of almost impossibly high threshold of um, very compelling circumstances before they can challenge their deportation. But even people with much shorter sentences can only avoid deportation now if they can basically prove if they are almost British in all but the strictest sense and or have a genuine and subsisting relationship with a qualifying partner or child who will find the deportation excessively cruel. And the Home Office defines excessively cruel as... Uh, sorry, it, it, the term is actually unduly harsh, which the Home Office then defines as excessively cruel. 
So in other words, the, the impact on a British child, say, of the deportation of her father needs to be excessively cruel before it will stop, um, before it can be used to stop the person's deportation. And very importantly for people I'm working with, uh, people who aren't lawfully resident in the UK for most of their lives face particular problems accessing Article 8 in this way. So that's just a, a very small bit of context there, historically and contemporarily, the contemporary political context, in, or, in order to now set the scene for looking at some of these families. And what I'm going to be looking at in this talk is how people having family ties how it affects their experience of their own immigration instability, but also how the immigration struggles and insecurity affects the whole family, including British citizens. And I'm going to be arguing that the immigration system really reaches into the heart of these particular families and produces quite gendered implications for both parties' ability to be the parents' partners they want to be. So I'm just coming to the end now of conducting the research, and it's taken me to a whole variety of different places across the country. And what I'm going to be talking about primarily today is interviews that I did with uh, the men who were at risk of deportation and all their partners. But on, in addition, I've also um, interviewed a whole range of practitioners, so wedding registrars, NGOs, barristers, um, inspectors of detention and the Home Office. And I've also sat in on an awful lot of different judicial appeals, particularly deportation appeals, but also bail hearings, asylum appeals and so on. But as I said, what I'm going to be concentrating on today is these interviews with the men who have a precarious immigration status and or their partners. And in most cases, I interviewed one or the other, although in a few cases, I interviewed both couples. And in, in all bar one case, they were heterosexual. So the um, men in various ways all had a precarious immigration status. And in the ma vast majority of cases, they were immigration offenders although some had never had a secure status in the UK, and many had spent years and years in the system. So think sort of asylum seekers, people who have had their asylum claims refused, people who have overstayed visas, but also various long-term residents who may have been here since they were children, but somehow been caught up in the immigration system, usually after a criminal record. Having said that, a couple of the men did have some kind of legal or regular status. It's just that it was insecure or temporary, so like a visitor visa or uh, the probationary part of a spousal visa. But in the majority of cases, they were immigration offenders. And from a whole variety of countries, um, a lot of sub-Saharan Africans, but also North Africans, Middle Easterns, an American man, some Asian men. And they were kind of late 20s to 40s. So I'm going to be drawing from 13 of the men, and they, 10 of these 13 had British or European children in the UK. Only four of them were actually married. One had tried to get married at the Home Office and stopped it at the wedding. Um, five were split up during or after the research, and then three felt that they couldn't get married until after they sorted out their status, which is something I'll come back to. But, but a lot, the vast majority had children. And were sort of denigrated in various ways. So they were, there were issues around their gender, which is what I'll be talking about a lot today, but also ethnicity and their immigration status. And then for a lot of them also, sort of issues around poverty and a criminal record meant that in many ways they were, um, their, their emotional lives came under suspicion. Now, the women, I spoke to an equal number of the women, um, all of whom were white, the vast majority were British, there were a couple of EU citizens, and there were similar ages around sort of 20s to 30s. About half the women um, were quite privileged in their lives, sort of GPs, owned homes, uh, fairly middle-class, successful lives, and about half in various ways were more marginalised. But interestingly, and again, what I'll come back to, is all of them were made more marginal through their situation. And the vast majority of the women didn't know anything about the immigration system before they got into these relationships. There were a few that had been volunteering or activists, but generally the women had no knowledge of the immigration system or the Home Office. They came to know a lot. <laughs> but, um, and again, the vast majority had children with their partners, although only about half were married. Again, a lot split up um, or didn't want to get married until they sorted out the immigration problems of their partner. And again, the vast majority of their partners were immigration offenders and came from a variety of countries, um, a lot of sub-Saharan Africans, Middle Easterns, North Africans. And most had just met completely randomly, sort of as you would, in a club, through friends, at a party, um, and then sort of started up these relationships whilst the rest of their immigration kind of lives continued. Turning now to the impacts of these family ties on people's experience of their own immigration precarity, 
as I've said at the beginning, having family ties does not mean that someone can get the right to remain in the UK, especially if they've got a deportation order. But having said that, these ties did really experience, uh, affect the men's experience of their immigration status and their precarity. And in many ways, having family ties in the UK just simply exaggerates a lot of the normal hardships of um, having a precarious immigration status. So lots of having to go to court hearings, accumulate lots of evidence, fight your own case if you can't get a solicitor. All of these things that are kind of fairly normal hardships and the powerlessness of living without us immigration status. But these are made worse through having children or partners in, in the UK. Those kind of additional and overriding emotional dimensions. Lots of fear or loss or guilt. And in a lot of ways, a big conflict of roles. Your obligations to the Home Office and your obligations to your family often didn't line up. But certain aspects of having um, no secure immigration status took on particular potency, and I would argue that this is particularly gendered. So the limbo that is very common to not having a status, you know, not knowing how long the battles might take with the Home Office, what the result will be, which country you'll end up in, these things made much worse if, you, if you've got a child or a lover that's going through it with you. And a lot of fears around separation, particularly around the, the potential of uh, deportation or removal, meaning often permanent separation. But even within the UK, there are various ways in which the men were often um, kept separate from their families. So detention, immigration detention, prison being kind of obvious ones, but also people having to move to big cities to work legally to find illegal work, um, all various dispersal processes that the Home Office, um, um, that people uh, go through, meaning that they might end up on the opposite end of the country from their, from their families. And a lot of people said it was much easier to go through the immigration system when they were single, much harder when they got family going through it with them. But what I'm going to focus on here is um, two particular aspects of not having a secure immigration status, immigration detention and also working. So about half of the men had been in immigration detention um, for anywhere between a day to many years, and the rest potentially could have ended up in detention. And as I'm sure you're aware, detention is always a very unpleasant process. Uh, you know, your liberty has been taken away from you. It's also very uncertain uh, length of time you'll be there and outcomes. But when somebody has a child or partner in the community that they're separated from, there's then additional layers of pain, loss and fear. And it was quite interesting seeing how the men attempted, especially at the beginning of their detention, to try and be, remain active fathers, active partners. So, for example, doing things like homework with their daughter when they came to visit, um, or working in detention centres, which is a controversial scheme where people are paid well below the minimum wage, but working in the centres so as to have a little bit of money by which to then send to families, which I think it's capped at something like £5 a week, so it's not very much, but trying to get some money to send. But detention is a process, and as people um, are held for longer periods of time, family ties stop being a source of comfort and start being a source of guilt and pain. And so it was very common for the men to say that um, all their partners, as the detention kind of went on and on, the men would start to isolate themselves, disconnect from their families, stop calling families. And relation, it put a lot of stress on relationships. There's also a lot of systemic hurdles against keeping in contact. There are no, unlike prison, there are no attempts to keep detainees in contact with their family. So people aren't sort of uh, how, uh, detained near family. There aren't schemes set, like storybook dads in which to keep the contact or supports given to family in order to visit. So there's all these kind of hurdles which makes it very difficult for families to stay in touch. And then on top of that, the emotions of detention mean that people often start disconnecting. And so relationships split up and it's a very stressful time. Um, it's also this, the lack of contact is then also used um, to bolster a claim to against, sorry, to bolster the, um, the case against somebody's Article 8 rights. So to show, look, your family haven't visited you, you can't prove that they've come to see you. So this would then kind of be used to undermine their status as um, important in that family even further. But it was, it was work, perhaps more than any other aspect of an insecure immigration status, that really deeply affected the men's relationships and their sense of themselves as gendered adults. So there were a few people that worked illegally um, or had worked illegally. Some had gone to prison for it. And interestingly, when they had worked illegally, they often said that's when their relationships are most normal and they could kind of um, fulfil the kind of gender roles that they were expecting. But when people weren't working, 
weren't working illegally. Not being active, not having money, not being able to contribute to the family financially was really described by both the men and the women as stripping the men of their self-worth. And they found themselves subjected to conditions of forced dependency, social exclusion in many ways, um, and potentially criminality if they went into illegal work. So you get a lot of, um, I mean, there was a lot of quotes from the people, from the men in particular, about um, how not having any money, not being able to work, make you very dependent on people, dependent particularly on your partner or her family. Unemployment and poverty, homelessness, uh, in some cases, obviously severely hinders people's ability to be the parents or partners they want to be. And I would argue that the prohibitions against work for people without immigration status is quite unlike the sort of normal stresses of unemployment in that they, they have, there's no recourse to public funds, so there's no benefit safety blankets. There's the possibility of working legally for some, but that's very risky. And it's very hard for friends or family to understand why this person is living in their, in their, girlfriend, in their daughter's house not working. And particularly when this goes on for several years, there's often um, extended family parents getting quite suspicious of, of the man and why he's not working. But so it, it meant that the men generally had to rely financially and for accommodation on their partner and or her extended family. And some would also be given cash by their partners, which they saw as sort of pocket money and they needed and they felt grateful for, but also it would be a source of shame and obligation. And you get lots of issues around how the money is spent and whose money it really is, and it's a real source of um, arguments, people. And the, so the men talked a lot um, about the embarrassment of not being able to contribute, or the same shame of, sort of sitting around all day, the risk of being seen as being lazy, not being able to provide presents for your children as a real source of pain. And this is really described in quite gender terms. So things like my manhood is being ripped away from me or she wears the trousers and I wear the skirts. And the sociologists have long recognised, and it was certainly backed up by the, the people I spoke to, work is a particularly important source of pride and of gendered identity for men. And so by not being allowed to work, they felt uh, lazy, useless, a burden but also abnormal outside of normal social life and as not being proper adult men. And this also created particular problems when it meant that the women had to work extra hard, possibly two jobs or extra long hours, in order to support both her and her partner and any children that were there. So it became a real mismatch between the sort of idle man stuck at home not being able to do anything and this extra hard-working uh, woman. And this could lead to a lot of problems. And particularly had a lot of issues around power balances and gender roles, which um, I will come back to. And just as a sort of aside, it was quite interesting that lots of the women tried to find alternative ways in which the men um, uh, could demonstrate their independence and their masculinity. And so kind of protecting the man's masculinity became part of the women's work. So she would find him childcare or sort of DIY tasks around the house or get him to help with elderly relatives, other ways in which he could contribute. Um, but it was ultimately quite hard for the couples to escape this power dynamic and particularly any kind of role reversal of, of gender roles. Turning now to look at how having a precarious immigration status and all the immigration rules itself affects families. It was very clear that on a whole load of levels, the immigration system and the home office really entered into people's family life and in some cases into sort of bedroom. And it shapes the trajectory, speed, experience of and often also the outcome of relationships. So for those who didn't have a secure immigration status, there's always a question of when do you mention that to somebody that you meet? Do you mention that on the first date? Do you mention that when it starts to get serious? Big questions about who finds out that he's got no status. Is it just the partner? Is it her parents, her extended family? What lies do you have to tell? What lies does she end up telling her family members? So it gets very, it gets very difficult and uh, quite unpleasant in some situations. People often said that there was no kind of fun bit to these relationships. It ended up getting very serious very quickly. Um, maybe he might have a tag, so he had a curfew, couldn't go out at night. He would often be very sort of serious, quite preoccupied with his immigration case, feeling outside of normal sort of social spheres. So one woman, for example, said how you know she liked having dinner parties and having people around, but how her partner couldn't. He couldn't sit down and do chit-chat around house prices and good schools. He, did, he felt too abnormal from that world. Another said that they'd never gone on dates because um, she would always have to pay, so they would go out. They would both sit there. He'd be resentful that she was going to pay. She was resentful that she was going to have to pay. They'd have a huge argument, storm out before the food ever arrives. Or another person's talking about not being able to buy gifts, you know, having to borrow money from his girlfriend in order to buy her a gift. So in various ways, things got serious quite quickly, uh, particularly if there were accommodation issues, if he 
is destitute, for example, you might have a habit quite much earlier than you would normally discuss marriage very early on. But what was quite interesting is that the men had really internalised suspicion over their motives, and they really worried a lot about what the partner and her parents in particular thought his motives were. And so most tried really hard to keep their immigration lives and their private lives separate, and so delay things like marriage or starting a family until the immigration status was resolved, so that he could provide, he could uh, pay for children, the wedding, whatever, but also so that there were no suspicions over his, his motives wanting to get married. And this caused people harm in some cases because it meant they were withholding information from solicitors, and when the solicitors found out, they might drop the person. But in any case, so the men worked quite hard to keep these separate and were more likely to emphasise this kind of pure love relationship with me and focus on the emotions rather than any practical gain. And in contrast, um, the women, interestingly, were much more likely to take a fairly pragmatic approach and try to access the strategic gains of marriage and try to employ their own citizenship privileges to resolve their partner's immigration status. But so for the men, they often said things like, um, I, I can't have children now. I, it's, their immigration status meant that they weren't <coughs> able to do things like have children. Although in some cases, this person right at the end, deciding actually, you know what, I'm going to have a child, even though I've been stuck in this immigration situation for years and there's no possibility of a clear end, actually my life is more important. And so, as this man said, why waste even more time when next year we could be holding a bundle of joy? During all the stress of my immigration situation, I find hope, something looked forward to. And it, it's, it's interesting how many of the couples did have children, even though marriage was kind of too much of a commitment in this very precarious and secure situation. And in, I've sort of questioned in why they had children, in that, um, as Helena Ray referred to a couple of weeks ago, there's often an assumption, I think, by the authorities that people do things quite rationally. Family planning is quite irrational that you sort out your immigration situation, get married, you have children. And actually life is much messier. And so for most of the people, they had children, it wasn't planned. Um, in some cases it was, but in most cases it was an accident. Life is just complicated. But once there was a child, being a parent as an irregular migrant was very difficult, especially if you're destitute, you don't work. Coming in and out of your child's life is quite difficult. A lot of mental health issues. Being in detention or prison, as we've said, is very difficult to parent, uh, parent from. There were men who missed births because they were out, they were being forced out of the country or they were in detention at the time and so um, were virtually present at the birth on the phone or on WhatsApp whilst their partner was giving birth. And just to sort of reflect briefly on the gender roles, if, um, if it's a foreign woman who is who's dependent in this way on a citizen man, in some ways you could see that it's reinforcing fairly familiar gender norms. But with my participants, because it was a foreign man marrying citizen women, it really challenged, and in many cases, reversed some of the gender norms. And the men, a lot of the men, wanted fairly traditional gender roles. They wanted to marry, they wanted to ask a partner's father for a hand in marriage, they wanted to provide for their families. And this ability to bring in money was seen as a really primary source of, of worth. But they were forced to be passive in having to depend on her family, on, her, on their, sorry, depend on their partner and her family for support. And so, in some cases, this made people into much more sort of modern fathers than they were expecting. And um, some of the men talked about quite a lot of positives about the fact that they were stay-at-home, hands-on dads and had really close bonds with their children that they weren't expecting to. But they also, at the same time, found it very emasculating. And with the women, um, they were quite mixed in terms of their own gendered expectations. Many of the women described themselves as feminists, and so, very interestingly, several of the women said they would not have married, they didn't believe in marriage, they didn't want to do it, but in this situation they would because they wanted to try and sort out their partner's immigration situation, even though in many cases it didn't. But, they, so, but so even though they didn't want to marry, they felt pressured into getting married, they wanted to get married, but for strategic purposes. Others were then forced out of work, were forced into being single parents, often forced into benefits for the first time, because the partner had been deported or was being detained. And so they then became housewives um, or single parents in a way they didn't want to be, they hadn't intended to be. And then other women had wanted to play quite traditional female roles, wanted to be a stay-at-home mum or wanted to take, wanted to sort of focus on the family, but were forced into working very long hours or multiple jobs in order to support the whole family. 
And so they weren't able to be the adult women that they wanted to be, just as the, their partners weren't being the adult men that they wanted to be. And so this role reversal within the family and the dependency, it was traits on the woman and the challenges to both parties' expectations and desires around their gendered roles and identities caused a lot of stress. And certainly, although there were some couples where there was sort of shared adversity and brought people together, in an awful lot of cases, living under a precarious immigration status puts huge strains on the relationship. You know, there's court battles, the threat of deportation, money issues, fears of the police, not being able to go anywhere, um, battles of the Home Office, huge amounts of stress for both parties. And um, as we've seen, a lot of this stress is described in the experience of quite cult in gender terms. And so there was, even when the man didn't end up getting removed or deported, there was quite a lot of relationships that did entirely break down. And that was obviously emotionally devastating. For lots of these men, this was the only normal or positive thing in their life. But it also had implications for their immigration cases and basic needs. You know, in some cases, it meant somebody was out on the streets, couldn't afford to eat. And this would often cause, the other way around, would cause sort of um, obstacles against splitting up. So people saying they wanted, a lot of the women, some of the women I interviewed saying that they wanted to split up, but they couldn't because they knew it would mean he would be destitute. So, so far I've been looking particularly at the, the couples and the extent to which the Home Office, the judiciary, etc., have been present. They've been fairly sort of implicit in the background. They've created there's the immigration rules that structure the people's lives and there's that threat constantly hanging of immigration enforcement, but it's often in the background and it goes on for years and years. But there are also spaces in which um, various authority figures, the immigration system, Home Office, explicitly interferes with family life. And the deportation appeals I sat in on in particular, you see very um, explicitly these arguments about who belongs and who, who should stay in the UK, who's important to British children and their lives, etc. But so, if we, by through looking at the legislation and individual correspondence and decision-making, we see various ways in which uh, the Home Office and judicial figures explicitly question or dismiss the importance of some of these men as family men, generally focusing on questions of legality and criminality to the exclusion of their roles as parents and partners. So in some cases, uh, the, um, the existence of the family life would be, complete, would be disputed, either the accusations that it's a sham marriage um, or that it's, it's opportunistic in some way, um, you get in in the in the tension. You often get this. The Home Office letters will have this uh, no close ties box, and it's always ticked. You get you hear from the NGOs as well that this box is always ticked. Even if the person has wife, children, whatever, this box no close ties is always sort of ticked. There's kind of refusal to accept that there is family life. Whereas in other cases, family life um, was um, was acknowledged, was seen as existing but just as not being important enough to override the public interest of deportation or is somehow sacrificial to that public interest. And interestingly, I'm just looking a little bit at Home Office definitions of the family, um, which I've only just started to look at, but it seems, although the Home Office is moving towards a, a sort of increasingly modern ideas about relationships, so acknowledging same-sex couples, um, cohabiting but unmarried couples, but in various ways... The, the immigration system also encourages fairly traditional family practices. So as we, I've noticed, a lot of women feeling um, encouraged towards marriage when they didn't intend, didn't want to get married, but also a um, particular kind of marriage. So women feeling they needed to do the big white dress and to have lots of um, family at the wedding and to change her name as all being part of the way to prove to the Home Office that the, the marriage is genuine. We've seen this sort of assumption that the Home Office has of people getting married, sort of in growth stages, getting married, having children in fairly sort of rational ways. And if you look at the sham marriage discourse, quite a lot of that shows fairly conservative ideas about what genuine relationships are in terms of things like age differences between the man and the woman, in terms of which nationalities get, get married normally, um, and which, sort of, which, relation, which, couple, uh, which couplings of nationalities is unusual kind of suggesting some fairly stereotypical and in some cases reductive ideas about genuine relationships. 
And But at the same time as he's kind of pushed towards a fairly stable two-parent traditional relationships, at the same time, this particular aspect of the immigration system is making certain women into single mothers and arguing that these particular men are not important to the families. The, you know, with examples such as um, saying to a person, you can be quite adequate father from using Skype from Abuja. And talking to both barristers and people working in the NGOs, there's also this, uh, they repeatedly said that they're basically, the, the idea from the Home Office is that mother is, the, as one person said, all the parental they need. The, the mother is kind of the most important parent, and the fathers, particularly fathers of criminal records without an immigration status, in fairly um, racialized ways, are not important, or not as important. Superfluous is the way one person put it. And in... As a touch on in the introduction, the 2014 Immigration Act in particular has major impacts for how certain parents' relationships are valued. And these are very gendered as racialized, as um, I've said, but also relates a lot to criminal records and persons' immigration status. So you get a lot of people saying that, basically, as a quote, people in situations like us just shouldn't have relationships. And a lot of... And, and this is reflecting the fact that they generally picked up on this idea that if you don't have immigration status, then the family life you create in that situation is not, um, is not as important uh, as the family life you create if under a stable immigration system and doesn't have the same um, weights in terms of challenging a deportation order. So under the 2014 Act, to demonstrate that family ties are important enough to outweigh the public good of expulsion... Things like speaking English, having money, working regularly are now important factors for decision makers to take into account, as is the immigration history of the individual as well as his or her partner or child. And importantly for many of the participants in this research, little weight is placed on relationships established when somebody is in the UK unlawfully or a little weight placed in private lives that are formed under precarious immigration status. So under this act, family life involving non-EEA nationals counts a lot more when the family is assessed as being wealthy, law-abiding, um, and English speakers. So those who are poor or who have breached immigration or criminal law or who aren't fluent in English uh, struggle to access protections for the intimate realm in the same way. And of course, this has very uneven impacts uh, depending upon people's class, ethnicity, nationality, etc., and for the people with criminal records in particular, the, the raising of the Article 8 threshold is, is so significant that really it was, it was very hard for them to, to articulate um, a, a right to belong in the UK. And politically speaking, it's considered usually to be in the public interest now to deport foreign national offenders, the vast majority of whom are men, whatever their situation in the UK. And as I, I said at the beginning, the, the impact on a, on a partner or child qualifying partner or child, now has to meet this excessively cruel um, threshold before it, comes, before it can uh, be effective. And it was just to give you an idea of how difficult it is to meet that threshold, I was interviewing one woman whose 13-year-old daughter has tried to commit suicide because her father is in detention, and that doesn't meet that threshold. Both the Home Office and the Immigration uh, Tribunal have said that that doesn't meet excessively cruel, it's unduly harsh threshold. So just to give you a brief um, case study to try and pick through some of these um, discrepancies between people's experiences of their real life um, to their everyday emotional realm and the portrayal of them by the Home Office and others. I'm going to talk about um, a guy called Cameron, it's not his real name, who was a young refused asylum seeker when I first met him in immigration detention. He's also a foreign criminal who's been deported from the UK but he'd also just become his father. And his first, chi- his first child, he only has one child at the moment, was born five months before I met him, whilst he was in prison. And Carmen, speaks in very quiet, sort of impeccable English. He's, he speaks very movingly about his, child, his son and about his long-term British partner. So he, he talked, for example, about going to the first pregnancy scan and how it's just so amazing, so amazing listening to the heartbeat. He's really very genuinely kind of excited and joyful about the pregnancy. But then he ended up in prison, and so his tales of the other milestones of the pregnancy, such as discovering that it was going to be a little boy, 
These are all tainted with uh, the pain of enforced separation, as he was in prison at the time for his third short but third prison sentence. And each time up until this point that he'd had a prison sentence, he'd gone to prison for a few weeks and then had been released. But this, this time, he wasn't. But so he and his partner expected him to be, and she, she was standing outside the prison at the end of his sentence, heavily pregnant, and um, was devastated. He was devastated to find out that actually he was going to get moved to immigration detention and be deported, which he hadn't, he hadn't been told. As he had to ring his partner outside the prison gates and tell her that she had to go home and hear her howl with grief. And she gave birth six days later, not long out of her teens. And I find it really hard to reconcile the, um, the contrast between Karma's perspective of his UK family and how important he was to it and how important they were to him and how much he loved his newborn child and his girlfriend, how to reconcile that with a picture painted by the Home Office. Because his latest, uh, as I met him in detention, he'd just been found out that he'd been refused his latest asylum and human rights application. And because of the appeal changes, he has no in-country appeal right against his deportation order, so will be deported. And if he wants to appeal, can appeal, he has to do it after that. And in the refusal, the Home Office argued that as a foreign national, Carmen is he's a dangerous, persistent offender, and that his deportation would be conducive to the public good and in the public interest. So they accept that Carmen has a family in the UK, which, as I've suggested, is not a mean, no mean feat in itself but they don't consider it to outweigh the public interest of deporting a foreign criminal and also say that, anyway, the whole family could move to Iran if they wanted to. But furthermore, and quite painfully for Cameron, his involuntary separation for his family was used to dispute the fact that he is a genuine subsisting, which is the term, relationship with the baby. Because as the Home Office argues in his refusal letter, fatherhood goes beyond the biological and requires a and I quote, significant and meaningful positive involvement in a child's life. And so even though Carmen is desperate to be with his family, saying things like, I'm dying to spend a minute with him, according to Carmen, the Home Office is suggesting that, um, and I quote, already I've not been there for him because my partner's been looking after him, so they say he doesn't really need me. That's really horrible to hear that. She needs me. So... For Carmen, he was stuck in first prison and then detention, unable to see his child beyond the short visits, but was having, as well as enduring that pain, was, had this used against him to suggest that he didn't have a meaningful relationship with his child. It's kind of a catch-22 for him. <coughs> and so they, the homeless are arguing that he's not been a proper dad so far, he's not even lived with his child, he doesn't have a journey of subsisting relationship with a baby, but even if he did, that he's a foreign criminal and so he should be deported for the public good. And Carmen's not the only person in this situation. There were many people, many men, who seemed to be in the situation where the home office was defining the ideal fatherhood, telling them how they should be fathers and other and gendered adults more broadly, but then presenting various hurdles to, to power, parenting or partnering. Uh, sorry, then presenting hurdles to parenting or partnering, partnering. So stopping people from being able to work, putting people in detention, various dispersal schemes. And then people were not only dealing with the sort of emotional pain of that, but also being judged by the Home Office, by immigration judges, by the general public, by the person's partner's family, for not meeting that ideal, for not being able to be a good father or a good husband. And so it seems that the men were both being prevented from being the adult men, family figures they wanted to be, and that their culture and British culture says that they should be, and that the Home Office says they should be. So to, just as um, a short example, there's one man I spoke to who um, he'd had a baby, relationship had split up, but he'd had a baby quite recently. And he also had a reporting requirement to go to the Home Office. And he had, he had no application, everything had been refused. He'd been a asylum seeker for years, all, everything had been refused. He had no applications pending. He was right at the end of the line. But he had to go and report. And he knew that if he went to report, he was very likely to be detained and then removed. But he had this newborn baby. And he had slightly difficult um, visiting rights as baby because he, he, he and the partner split up. So he was kind of um, depending on the goodwill of the partner to be able to see the child. So he, that was already quite precarious, sort of difficult situation. And then there was just reporting. And for him, he was really stuck with what should he do? Should he go and report like he needed to, to be a good migrant, to appease the Home Office? 
or did he have some kind of... Um, it was the son the priority, and did he have an obligation to do everything he could to remain in the country for the son, even if that meant breaking the rules? And he said very clearly, I will die without pain if I get removed from him. And I have to do right with my son. I'm fighting for the right to be my son. Basically, I don't have a choice. So, the last section I'm going to look at here is about the British citizens. Because obviously, so far, I've been focusing quite a lot on the men but they were in relationships with British or EU citizens, and the man's immigration struggles really deeply affected the well-being of the women as well. So there was quite a lot of stresses. Some of the women had mental health issues, uh, were on medication in ways that they hadn't been previously. Um, And as I've said earlier, a lot of the women were forced to work how or when they didn't want to, um, when they wanted to instead be a um, stay-at-home mum. There were women who didn't take up the maternity leave because the family depended on their income. And so financially, it affected the women um, really significantly. They became sole breadwinners by having to support more than one person. Sometimes their housing benefits would be cut, even though the, the man had no recourse to public funds. They also had to pay huge amounts for lawyers, for immigration applications. So in a whole variety of ways, the women were made poorer. But they were also made more marginal and alienated in other ways. So people um, coming single mothers because the, the man had been removed or in detention. Women saying that they were on benefits for the first time in their life. Examples are given of people, women having to give birth alone, having to look after newborns alone. Big problems with their family sometimes if they didn't approve of the relationships, their estrangement. Um, quite a few of the women ended up having to go back to live with their parents because they couldn't afford to support the family just on her wage. And her life would also be in limbo very much. Um, so not being able to do things like get a bigger house or move until the situation was sorted. And in many cases, putting off things like having children or marriage until this was sorted out. So their lives were really stuck as well. But beyond that, there was also a sense that the women were being judged and were losing standing from their relationships. So they're being judged by the Home Office, but also in, by the immigration judges um, in these kind of judicial appeals, and in some cases also MPs. And so in the bail hearings and the deportation appeals that I sat in on, for example, you'd get um, the partners criticised for not contacting the authorities to say he doesn't have immigration status, um, for not stopping his immigration offending. And the fact that they got into relationships, started a family whilst he had a precarious status, is often met with disapproval. Um, and uh, immigration barrister that I interviewed, for example, said that the, the British partners are often seen as partly responsible and her standing, kind of her moral character gets called into question. So, for example, a judge noting that the girlfriend has a criminal record with no explanation, but somehow kind of just noting that for everybody. Raising questions of who is able to access Article 8 rights, not just in terms of um, non-citizens, but as citizens. Is, are all citizens able to ask, access Article 8 protections in, the same, in, in an equal way, or are, there, are good citizens somehow prioritised? And most of these women weren't used to having any scrutiny of their lives in this way. And in, but now finding their choices, uh, the way they lived their life, how much they earned, if they had children, why they had children, all of these started to get called into question. And they would experience, in some cases, quite um, intrusive questioning and interference in their private life. The authorities, the Home Office, tends to insist on knowing absolutely everything. So you get people printing out the most private um, sort of conversations they've had on social media in order to sort of prove a relationship. And this disbelief, so also a lot of women finding it very shocking to have their emotional attachments disbelieved, to have it questioned. And in some ways, very insultingly. So one woman said how she'd come through passport controls with her husband and her brand-new baby, this is a man who had illegal but temporary immigration status, and how the immigration, the border control um, officer had looked into the pram and said, well, he doesn't look anything like him. We don't think he's really his baby. And she said the, the shock that she experienced you know, in the UK from a UK border official challenging the paternity of her baby is really deeply offending to her and surprising. So in, in most cases, the women were very shocked about how they were being treated, how their loved one was being treated, and how the Home Office operated. And they were particularly surprised, generally, that their own citizenship privileges weren't transferable to the person they loved. 
they expected usually state agents to be helpful and polite to them and to sort of be working in their interests and found that actually they were in many cases really um, actively kind of fighting against the Home Office. The possible exception to this might be some women who were already quite marginalised and were kind of experienced in having the state work against their interests. But interestingly, even the women who already knew something about the immigration system, so had volunteered, for example, with different charities and knew of the, um, how badly third country nationals could be treated, they, they, despite themselves, kind of admitted that they still expected their privileges as sort of good, well-standing British citizens to be transferable to sort out their situation for their loved one. And the men, by the way, were not generally at all surprised about how they were being treated unless they were fairly privileged white migrants. So there was an American man and there was a white South African man, both <coughs> who were quite shocked. But generally, on the whole, they were not shocked at how the Home Office was treating themselves, although they were often shocked that the Home Office was treating British children, their British children, um, in not necessarily the, the nicest way. I thought this um, was quite an interesting quote here from an MP, a British citizen contacted their MP to say that they wanted help to sort out the situation and was told, you're not an EU citizen, you're a British subject. Because he was, uh, this, sorry, the citizen was um, raising the issue with the MP that EU citizens could bring in partners much more easily. And he was struggling to have his um, partner stay and was told this, you are a British citizen, you're a British subject, you're not an EU citizen. And this, this, kind of questioning, but the whole sort of system had really profound impacts on people's, uh, the citizens' feelings of security, privilege and belonging as citizens. So they in many ways felt quite powerful as compared to their partners. You know, they had the passport, they've got money, they've got citizenship, but ultimately they were very powerless. They couldn't sort out the immigration woes of their partner. And this produced quite a lot of guilt. Guilt from the privileges they had, but also guilt about how the country was treating their loved one and, and not being able to help. And so for the citizen women, not only do they confront the quite disarming re realisation that their privileges weren't readily transferable, but they also found that their own state was actively fighting to override their emotional ties in order to remove their father, husband or boyfriend. And so they were coming up against the fact that their love choices, their families and the well-being of their children were deemed somehow sacrificial to the public interest and thereby calling into question their value as good, loyal citizens. And this had potentially really quite profound implications for the women's relationships to the country and the government and their identity as British citizens. So shock and frustration often gave way to anger and resentment and um, people spoke about feeling quite rejected and not understanding why these rules were in place, feeling that the state was being very paternalistic and not giving them the right to choose their love lives and, and where they wanted to live with their loved ones. Some of the women lost faith in the country and decided to leave it this woman, why would I want to stay in a country where the man I love is illegal and we can never be truly free from the fear of us being torn apart? So some women left the country or, or intended to leave the country. Um, some wanted to give up dual citizenship. Others became quite political when they hadn't previously been or fell into exile. In some cases, they made people quite sympathetic to migration struggles generally and some kind of decided to become no-borders activists. But it all could also really divide people up. So this... This person here who contacted the MP about EU citizens was often a lot of suspicion about EU citizens and why they were able to access different um, legislation than UK citizens. Particularly interestingly, um, just to sort of finish on, quite a lot of some of the women took on traits that I think would be much more reminiscent of precarious migrants than British citizens. So one woman spoke about the panic she feels when she sees immigration enforcement vans, about people saying that they don't trust in the future. They have their suitcases packed in case they need to leave at any moment. One woman who carries her, her passport every time she goes out in public and her marriage certificate if she travels anywhere because she wants to be able to prove who she is in her relationship. This is British citizens. And then there's, there was one woman who's very actively trying to undermine border controls and was, her partner was trying to come in through a lorry and so she, she, was getting, she spent time with him in Calais and she was quite actively trying to undermine border controls. Whereas others were just consciously kind of sacrifice their citizenship rights. So, for example, um, deciding to give up going through the British passport controls but to stand united with their foreign spouse under the other um, queue. But all of them, however it affected them, were all altered by finding that their rights and interests as citizens can be overridden by immigration objectives and that their love lives are circumscribed by the migration system 
even though they aren't subject to immigration control. So just to wrap up, um, so mixed citizenship families, I would suggest, has long been a site of contestation at the heart of quite long-standing gendered and racialized discourses regarding the boundaries of belonging. And there's migrant, migrant families, but I would argue migrant male family members in particular, have been persistently presented as intrinsically problematic, either as suspicious or as somehow not important, or of less importance. And in this sort of ongoing historical context, I've been looking at a particular group of people who are trying to combine living normal lives with the really abnormalities of life as an irregular or precarious migrant. And I've shown that in many cases, men are trying to keep these two things separate, although they may fail in many cases. Looked at how immigration enforcement harms family life or restricts it in various ways, particularly how it affects gender roles, um, affects the abilities of fathers to be active, providing financially contributing men, affects the, their abilities to be sort of independent adults in relationships, at least the independent adults they want to be in, ad, in relationships, and also looked at how the emotional responsibilities of family makes the hardships of immigration struggles even harder, and again, in quite gendered ways. And I've shown that there's often a big contrast between the individual's point of view of their role as family men and the importance of their emotional ties Contrast with that, with a much more sort of reductive home office imaginary of them as foreign men. And also finished off by looking at some of the implications for British citizens for being in relationships with precarious migrants. Seeing that British citizens may become uh, their own standing as citizen, good citizens is somehow questioned through their love choices, that the citizenship privileges are increasingly not transferable to um, third country nationals look to how individual citizen interests are made sacrificial to this public interest, and how the women in various ways became more marginalised or suspect as a result of their situation. And for many, I'd say that there's this really inescapable conflict between being a good migrant and a good dad or a good partner. So particularly with that man that I said who had this reporting dilemma, there was no way that I can see he could be both a good migrant and a good father in that kind of situation. And I think that kind of tension between these different aspects of people's lives is often um, inescapable. So, thank you very much.